Welcome to the 157th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Isla Morley, author of the new novel, Above. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book-loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read. And authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S.com. And look for the link in the show notes as well. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Isla Morley, author of the new novel, Above. Publishers Weekly said Morley scores with an audacious page turner. Isla, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Great. Well, can I have you read the first couple of pages of Above? Sure. Dobbs wins the fight easily. He shuts and locks the door. I feel a small sense of relief. With a hulking slab of metal separating us, I am finally able to breathe just a little. It is only when I hear another thump, another door closing someplace above me that I understand. Not only am I to be left alone, I am to be hidden. I am a secret no one is able to tell. Just like that, Instead of wishing Dobbs gone, I am now waiting for him to come back. Surely it won't take long. When Dobbs returns, I'll take him off guard. I'll push past him, dash outside and sprint across the field. I will steer clear of the road. I'll head for the line of sycamore trees along the creek. I'll make my way east and he won't think to follow me there on account of its being trapper's territory. Even if I do get snared, it'll be better than this. Because someone will find me. Nobody's going to find me here. Whatever here is. A dungeon? I can't make any sense of it. A big round room with a massive pillar right through the middle of it. Contraptions, wires, pipes, spigots, dials. I keep my back turned to the space. Keep my face pressed up against the door. It is made of steel and has a handle although not like one I've ever seen, something a bank might have on its vault. What has he done? What's happened to me? Surely Doc should be getting back by now. He'll take me out of here. He'll explain it to me, not like before, which didn't make any sense. He won't be rough either or cross. He'll be nice, like how he is in the library. I look at Grandpa's watch, Only 15 minutes have passed. Even though it is still ticking, I wind it tight. If only I was still at the horse thieves picnic, our town's annual tradition that I look forward to all year. The gathering that attracts a couple of thousand people has since moved from its original location among the walnut trees of Durr's Grove, now to Main Street, and its contents Contests no longer include large moustache for boys under 17, or baby with the worst case of colic, but there's still a parade and a carnival. Apart from the parade, the next most popular event is the concert at the bandstand, 
where daddy no doubt is now lying dancing. It takes no effort to imagine what my sisters and brothers are doing. Susie will be strutting around the midway looking for boys and Gerard not actually bleeding to death from wrecking his pickup on I-70 like Dobbs had first said, will be off with his pals to scale the water tower. Having left the horse thieves picnic early on account of Theo's fever, Mum has likely fallen asleep on her bed, the fan moving with the lazy July evening can't be bothered to blow through the window. No one has probably even noticed that I'm gone. How long will it take them before they do? And when they do, where will they imagine I am? What will they think the cause for my absence is? They won't be imagining anything bad, that's for sure. Bad things don't happen in Eudora, Kansas. Great. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Above yet, how would you describe your novel? It's a psychological thriller, Jeff. Um, it follows the story of a 16-year-old girl, Blythe, uh, who's been living in Eudora, Kansas, her whole life. And um, one night she's abducted by one of those uh, survivalist types who believes the end of the world is near. And uh, he, he keeps her in an abandoned Atlas F missile silo, which he calls the Ark, because um, he's got it stocked with all historical documents and um, an extensive seed catalog. He has DNA of almost every living creature known to man. But now with Blythe, he has a sound womb. And his plan is to keep her there until after the end of the world has happened and then re-emerge unharmed and, as he says, see the new world. So it really follows her struggle um, to survive and at first to escape and then later coming to grips with her, um, her captors encroaching madness. Uh, but finally, the, the ultimate test is when she has to raise a child in, in captivity, in those kind of confines, a child who might never experience the world above. And so it's a, um, an examination of how she uh, fosters a childhood for him and gives him a sense of hope um, and keeps him from knowing the awful truth of their circumstances down below. Wow. Wow. Um, so do you remember the initial spark or idea that led you to writing above? I do. I was, I was busy working on my second novel, at the time, which lives in my drawer, and um, and there was this uh, this headline about a girl in Belgium who had been abducted by her father uh, and kept in a basement um, below the house, uh, which he had prepared for years um, for for the, for his plan to abduct her. She was one of I don't know several children. And um, and she ended up staying there under the under the house, without ever having seen daylight, for twenty four years, and she ended up having six children, uh, three of which he took up to live in the in the um, upstairs house and made it look like 
you know, she had she had just dropped off those kids in the middle of the night, you know, and then disappeared back with the cults or something. Right, right. The, the three of those children ended up, uh, um, you know, staying with her that entire time, uh, having never experienced the outside world, never having felt daylight or seen the moon or um, heard conversations involving other people. They were just very isolated. And um, I was, I'm a mother of a young girl. And what struck me about that story was not the abduction so much as what would a mother do um, when she has to raise a child like that in those kinds of circumstances? How would she go about creating a world of wonder within those confines that those children can have quote unquote, as normal of a childhood as possible. And that was really the spark. Uh, I had a very clear idea that the protagonist for my story would create an elaborate myth rather than tell her son the truth of their circumstances. There would be a fable because, you know, throughout history, um, fables uh, mean so much to us individually and as communities um, they point to a greater truth, they're comforting, uh, and they're inspire, inspiring, and they give us hope. So I knew that she would fabricate some kind of story. And then I also had to figure out what of the world would she tell him that he wouldn't want to yearn for it as much. So in effect, she becomes an editor. Uh, she, she cuts and, 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 and minimizes and abbreviates the reality of the world above so that her son doesn't want to keep pressing to go above. That's, that's interesting. Um, so do you think you ever go back to the book that you were working on when you got this idea? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, after I finished above, uh, I got it out of the drawer and, uh, and I went over it and there's just, there's just too much, um, that's wrong with it. And I think the problem with that, uh, with that project was the fact that I started off with a clever idea for the structure. And, um, and so I kept on pushing all the characters and the action and everything into this uh, confining structure because I just wanted it to work so badly. And with my first novel, Come Sunday, and with Above, in both those cases, um, I followed a character with, a, with an initial scene and I wrote blind. So it was an incredible risk because I didn't know where it was going. I didn't plot. I didn't have any structure until way after much of the, um, the first draft was written. And, uh, and that's the process that seems to work for me rather than, than having uh, the structure and then trying to fit everything into that. Sure, sure. Well, you just, you just mentioned your first novel, Come Sunday. Have you always written fiction and wanted to be a writer? I never wanted to write fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up in South Africa uh, 
in in the 1970s and the 1980s, and uh, in a in a very um, middle class, average family, and uh, we were taught to have um, realistic ambitions for our lives, and also for me uh, in that time, writers were uh, they were either from other countries or um, they were from eons past, or if they were South African, they were either exiled at risk of imprisonment or about to be shot. Because this was a this was the time of uh, censorship when when the uh, South African government really had you know the arts by the throat because you know music and and words were a real threat to um, the status quo. So I, it would never have occurred to me uh, to be so bold as to have an ambition to be a writer. Uh, I did um, work in um, magazines. Um, I was an editor of a magazine, and, and I wouldn't really call that writing. Um, you know, it was just putting words together in a way that would sell magazines. <laughs> and I just felt like, you know, doing that kind of work was chipping away at my soul. And so after I moved to the U.S., I just swore off writing altogether. The only thing I ever wrote were, um, you know, airmail letters. That was before emails. Airmail letters back home to my mom. And... Uh, and then one night we were living in Honolulu, um, and we, you know, we were in a very difficult position in our lives. And I had the inspiration for what became Come Sunday, and uh, just this character kind of emerged next to my bed on a really stormy night, and. Um, and I described the scene to my husband, and he and he said, "Jot it down." Those three magical words, you know. He he just had such confidence and such a vision for me that I didn't even have for myself at that stage. Um, so I thought I'd just write that little opening scene in my notebook in case it ever meant anything. But when I sat down to write it. Uh, it just kept on going, and um, I'd, I'd literally write blind. I'd close my eyes, and I'd try and capture what I was seeing, and, and I just kept being led deeper and deeper into the story. And, you know, I looked up about 80 pages later, some three or four months later, and um, I realized that I was writing a novel, and then I thought, oh, dear, now what have I gotten myself into? And, and then what, what, what was the process of, of finishing that novel and getting it published? Well, I wrote part-time because I was working for the YWCA of Honolulu at that stage. So I wrote, um, I wrote a couple of hours in the evenings, not every evening, and I wrote during my daughter's nap time. And uh, we moved back to the L.A. area uh, soon after, I revised that novel about three times, and uh, it needed one good, strong, solid going through. And rather than uh, go and find a job, I, I just decided that I would complete it. So I, I worked for another eight months full time, just 
polishing that novel. And then I researched about how to get a novel published, and that was the worst thing to do, because if you ever want a lesson in humility, all you have to do is go on the internet and look at your chances of getting published. But I, uh, I, spent, about, I spent a whole summer crafting a one-page query letter for, uh, for an agent, and I, I um, did a dream list of agents. The top 10 got my first um, mailing, and two days after I sent an email out, I heard from Emma Sweeney in New York, and she's the, um, at that stage, uh, Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen was just, you know, topping the charts, and Emma was her, is her agent, and I, heard, I got an email back from Emma saying that she was interested in reading the manuscript. So I sent it to her, and a couple of days later, she called me and she said, I want to be your agent. I know exactly how to represent the story. And uh, so she told me she was going to send it out to publishers, and I thought, okay, great. So maybe I'll hear from her in about three months. And a week later, she presented me with six offers, six or seven offers from major publishing houses. So, you know, it was just such a whirlwind. Um, and we ended up going with Farah Strauss and Giroux. And, uh, and 18 months later, after selling the manuscript to them, Come Sunday Hit the Shelves, which happened right after we all fell off a cliff um, with the, uh, the economic collapse of 2008. So it was not the best timing to be bringing out a novel. But that's an amazing story of getting it published. It is. You know, it, um, my husband had been coaching me, uh, you know, saying that now – Rejections are part of the process, and we're just going to keep sending out letters and don't get discouraged uh, because he knows how thin-skinned I am. Um, you know, I, I write, uh, well, Come Sunday was literally written in a closet. You know, I, I moved aside his, his shirts and pulpit robes, and I moved my desk into a closet, and I didn't tell anyone what I was doing, and that is because... You know, I think, um, you know, I, I write out of some sense of insecurity. So, and I also didn't know if I was going to have anything at the end of all this time. So it was easier not to tell anybody because then I would only have to deal with my own disappointment. So somehow having, you know, that endorsement come so quickly to me was was a sign that, um, that, that I had found my bliss and that I was to continue following my bliss, keep following my heart. Great. Right. So are you working on something now? I am working on something. Um, again, it started with, uh, with, a, with a, something that popped across my screen and, and, uh, a character and a vision, and um, yeah, and so I've been I've been trying to just be 
be true to that process that has worked for both Come Sunday and Above and just kind of following that character and letting the story reveal itself to me and and not not come out of it with a sense of panic and try and plot everything in advance, but but just kind of to risk all over again. You know, I um, I just can never get cocky about writing because it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter how much you've written before or what's been published. It's always a blank page that you come to, and there's no guarantee. And that's probably the reason why, you know, I'm kind of hesitant to say anything more than that. Sure, sure, sure. So, so, so what so books or writers have you read in like the past six months or a year that inspired you or impressed you that you would mention, either fiction or nonfiction? Um, I've taken a break from reading fiction, uh, and I wonder if part of it is because I've seen behind the curtain, you know, um, I just know that what the, the whole process of, of editing and revising a novel and then, you know, getting it promoted and publicized and all of that. And so I've turned to nonfiction and, um, uh, what I like in a book is, um, it doesn't matter so much the, the subject, but the craft of it, you know, uh, those writers that, uh, can can create an image where I'm left asking myself, how on earth did you do that? So Joan Didion is one of those writers for me. I, I recently finished uh, her memoir, Blue Nights, and now I'm, I'm revisiting uh, some works by Frederick Beekner. I don't know if you know who he is, but um, he's one of the greatest living theologians in America today. And he, and he um, was very widely read in the late 60s and 70s on through the 80s. And I'm reading at the moment his, um, his work called The Hungering Dark, which is such a great title. Uh, and rather than that, you know, the nutri-sweet um, uh, writing that kind of dominates all the, the discussions about the Christian faith that's on the market right now and popular wherever you go. Um, his writing speaks to, you know, the complexity of, uh, of a faithful life and leading a life of meaning and purpose um, and leaves room for people like me who are um, who are people of faith but always doubters, you know. So and, and he does the same thing in his writing. He's able to to um, conjure these images and, and use the craft of his language in such a way that I'm spellbound. So I'm very grateful to to him and writers like him. That's great. That's great. Well, well, given your success with your two novels, do you have any writing advice for someone who might be listening who would like to have their own stories or novels published? Um, well, there's a lot of advice out there. Uh, you know, people people often um, talk about writing what you know, and you know, there's great books. For me, 
um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott is is a you know just has all the writing advice you could ever hope to gain. So I, I'd steer readers to to that kind of thing. But from my experience, I would add that you have to be careful who you tell your dreams to. Um, you know, we live in this hyper-share culture in America, and um, people can get addicted to, um, you know, wanting to be affirmed, and so they kind of overshare in various for forums. But I think that carries this risk because people then want to respond with statistics and numbers and, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of dream killers out there. So I would say that, uh, you know, just be careful of who you tell your dreams to and then dream big, you know. Um, what else? I'd also say that what I touched on earlier, structure should come after character. I think go with your inspiration and trust your gut and just risk it all. Um, and then finally, I would say try to unplug as much as you can. Um, unplug from all the, you know, the online noise and allow space for you to get bored. You know, we, we nobody sits at a doctor's office anymore and stares into space. You know, we've all got our little devices. But, um, you know, or on the freeway, we're, we're listening to something all the time. But we need that space where there's quiet and for, the, and for boredom to set in because that allows these thoughts to kind of percolate for, for stuff that's deep down to have a chance to rise to the surface. And very often it's those things that are um, original thoughts or inspired thoughts. Gotcha. gotcha. That, that's, that, good that's good advice. Good. So, I so, mean, given that, I did want to ask, where can people find you online if they're interested? <laughs> <laughs> Don't look for me online. Go right. Um, I'm at .com. Uh You can read about the book at abovethebook.com. And, uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all of those things. But only for a little while, because <laughs> in two or three months, I plan to do my great disappearing act. Right, right, right. Uh, and I'll have links to those in the show notes as well, if people are interested. Well, again, we've been speaking with Isla Morley, author of the new novel, Above. The book is in bookstores now, so grab a copy or grab an ebook. And Isla, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.